Let me pray. Have Isaiah 59 open in front of you and let me pray. God, we ask you to be the preacher because we believe that Jesus is the final prophet. He is the word of God to this planet. So we need you, Lord Jesus, to speak to us. Send us your spirit. Make these words. Pierce us. Penetrate us. May the Spirit wield his sword this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a few weeks ago, I made mention of an article. You, You may remember this, I don't know if you do. Which suggested that there is something very serious happening, well, at least in the Western world, to our men and to our boys. Do you remember me speaking about this? I spoke about the demise of boys and the demise of men. And it all comes out of a book called The Demise of Guys. Why boys are struggling and what we can do about it. It's written by a very well-known psychologist, Philip Zimbardo, and there's a, there's a co-author. And what he argues in this book the demise of guys, you can Amazon it or do whatever you want. What he argues is that we are in danger of losing an entire generation of men to pornography and video gaming addictions. And I spoke to you last time about fake love and fake war, both of which are consuming our men. Now, it's not my aim in this talk to get all sociological and psychological and bring up arguments and debates whether this is true or isn't. But what I do want to pick up, and I am suggesting it is true, but be that as it may, I want to pick up on men and violent gaming. And you'll see how this has relevance to the passage we're going to study. See, why are men so violent? Why are men always fighting? What's wrong with men. In 2010, Australia had just under 30,000 people in prison. 92% of those were men. What's wrong with us? 92% were men. Almost all, and I mean that, almost all violent crime is done by men. As a woman, I'd start getting annoyed. What is wrong with men? Let me take children. Let's pretend we can manipulate this. Take some boys and girls and take the boys and give them pretty ponies and dolls and pretty little things. My children love my pony and they're always brushing the mane and they've got these little Playmobil farms and stuff like that. Give that to boys. Then, take what I brought in my bag, a whole lot of guns and soldiers and things like that, and give them to the girls and see what happens. It won't be long before the boys will be blowing ponies up. (laughs) It It won't be long before pretty little ponies with long manes will turn into destructive dragons. And it won't be long before the girls will take the hardened soldier and he'll be carrying a little baby and playing family. 
And the toughest soldier will be a, you know, a one, wonderful mother. You just can't stop men fighting. Why? Because men were made in the image of God. The fact of the matter is that God is a warrior. The most frequent designation for God in the whole Bible is the Lord of the armies of heaven. God is not a hippie. But before you get too upset, and I know, I'm totally aware, that this is a very provocative way to start a sermon. I want to quickly point out to you why God is a warrior. Because God is at war with evil. God is fighting. God created man to fight. To have dominion over the world. And the word in Genesis is to subdue the world. Does that sound like man was meant to plant posies and I don't know anything about flowers. And suddenly, don't go there, Dwayne. Okay, let me think of something. Does that sound like man was meant to, you know, plant daisies and roses and whatever? No, he was to subdue the earth. He was meant to conquer the world because he's made in the image of God. God is the ruler. Evil entered the world through Satan. God made man as a vice ruler under God in charge of this planet to fight evil, to subdue it, to spread the glory of God over the whole face of the earth. Man was meant to fight against injustice, unrighteousness, everything that hurts people, and to protect women. That is why men were made to fight. Tragic. You know where this is going. Tragically. The Bible teaches that man, instead of fighting against evil, gave into it. In fact, you know what man did? He sent the woman into the front trenches. Instead of protecting the woman, we read in the book of Genesis that man's first failure was to let his wife do the fighting. She had to go and argue with the serpent. And she was deceived because she wasn't made to fight. Man failed to protect the woman. Instead, he followed his woman. The Bible's language is, God says to the man, because you listened to your wife. The the, the Hebrew is so clear. God is saying, because you obeyed your wife. She was meant to obey you. You were meant to fight for her. The problem, therefore, is that we're still fighters. We're still fighters. 92% of the inmates in Australia prison are male. They are still fighters. But they fight for evil instead of against it. We don't fight to eradicate evil. We fight to perpetuate evil. So you might be thinking, oh no, it's a whole talk about men. What about women? The Bible teaches that women were made by God to help man in the fight. She was meant to sustain him and help him in the good fight. And the Bible is the story of how men have failed tragically. We've got to be honest with you, women. We failed. We have failed. Failed miserably. From Adam 
to Noah, to David, to Solomon, men have failed. And so you know what God did? He finally decided, I better do it myself. So have a look with me at Isaiah 59. Look from verse 14. You should all be there. Isaiah 59 from verse 14. Listen to how God puts it. Justice, you're there. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Every high school kid will tell you that that's true. Depart from evil and you will be prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. There was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the spirit or ruach or wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who return from transgression, declares the Lord. What's God going to do? He's going to fight. And how's he going to fight? A redeemer will come to Zion. God is actually going to come and fight. And as for me, verse 21, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. God is going to come and fight. How's God going to fight? He's going to send a redeemer to Zion, this spirit-filled warrior, And the result of the Spirit-filled warrior is that his children are going to be filled with the Spirit and I gather continue the fight. The good news of Christianity, folks, is that God has kept this promise. That Isaiah 59 has been kept. God has sent a fighter. The ultimate fighter. His name, in case you were wondering, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He came and he fought. He did what man could not do. Jesus faced evil head on and he won. He fought evil in his life. So you know Satan tempted him after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He wrestled, wrestled with Satan in the desert. He won. And then he faced evil in his death. And he won. He died and rose again. In fact, the book of Ephesians that we've been studying teaches us that Jesus Christ has begun a brand new universe where evil is defeated and eradicated, where evil is no more. He has triumphed over evil forces 
And he has come as the captain of the Lord's army and he leads his people to victory. And every Christian, every follower of Jesus Christ is enlisted in that army. Every Christian, as we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 6, is in that army. And you need to get dressed for success. Friends, this is the day of war. The problem with Christians, I don't know what happened. Maybe it's Perth. I don't know. But at some point, some Christians think that we're in peacetime. They act as if we're at peace. They act as if Australia is their final home. Some people think you can retire in Australia. There is no retirement for the Christian. We fight and heaven is our retirement home kept for us. The truth is, there is a raging war going on around our heads, as you will see in the book of Ephesians. How do I know that some men think it's peacetime? Well, it's easy. They start fighting each other. That shows they haven't understood what the war is about. They've got the wrong battle. They've got the wrong war. Or they start fighting on Xbox. Because a man has to fight, he will fight make-believe monsters on a TV screen. Or sport, rugby. He'll watch rugby. Because a man must be part of a battle. Now, I want to say that those things are not wrong. I loved watching the Sharks hammer the bulls on, uh, on, on Friday night. Those things are not wrong. They are what a man does. But if they distract you from the war to end all wars, the true war that's going on around us, then you are a deserter and a coward. And you'll be treated by the captain of the armies as you deserve. Now, you might be thinking, this is a colourful preacher, isn't he? Folks, the imagery of war and battle is exactly how Paul ends the letter to Ephesians. So come with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter 6. Someone shout out a page number. <coughs> Sorry? 1178. Thank you. One one seven eight, and the other one's one one six seven. Thanks, Pat. Ephesians chapter six. Let me read it to you, and you will see that this picture of fighting—it's not a preacher's mechanism; it's the picture that Paul uses as he closes the letter to Ephesians, verse ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me show you three things from this passage. Sorry, Gunter, if you'll just make that live. One day we're going to get everything on PowerPoint and then this. There we go. First point from Ephesians chapter 6. We stand against the devil. There is a war on, folks. Look at what it says in 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the minute I say the word devil, some people will laugh and scoff. <laughs> you Christians, just too much. Because what you're thinking is a red man with horns and a forked tail. My day it was called hot stuff. It was a little comic that we used to have. When we speak about the devil, we are not talking about that. Some of you will walk past EB Games, Kingsway Shopping Centre, and you'll see a game advertised called Diablo, which is another word for devil. And there's this picture of this massive, scary, scary monster with tiny, slitty eyes and fire coming out and big horns. That's not what we mean. That's just somebody's imagination. Some of you will think Harry Potter. I'm not going to get into this, but that's not what we mean because that's superstitious nonsense. The devil is above all else a deceiver. Look at what it says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That is the wiliness, the craftiness. The book of Genesis tells us when the devil arrived on the scene that he was more crafty than any other creature that God had made. Jesus said this about the devil. He, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Jesus says that the devil is a deceiver, an angel of light. Now I'm going to be very provocative. Why do you think that the devil is ugly? Who told you that? The Bible doesn't. I want to suggest to you that the devil is beautiful. Beautiful beyond description. That he's gorgeous. That he's an angel of light and a deadly deceiver. He's beautiful, but he's a beautiful liar. What is the point of him coming to you with a flat nose and an ugly head like in Harry Potter? You'll spot him a mile away. It's silly for Christians to think people's bad imagination is satanic. But maybe. 
It's just as satanic when he appears as a moral good husband who won't gospel the children or bring them to church. That's as satanic. We must stop being silly and frightened. The devil is beautiful, but a liar and a deceiver. And that's why Christians are in warfare. We fight against his lies and his deceit. When the Bible says we're in warfare, this is what it means. It means a fight for the truth. That's why the first item, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that's why the first item in the armor is a, uh, is a belt of truth. It's the first thing that comes to Paul's mind. See, what does the devil want? Some people think the devil wants... <clears throat> Thank you, Hannah. I thought you were bringing that for me. Do I sound that bad? <clears throat> oh, there is one right here, but it looks, it looks very old. Uh, never preach and drink the water that's up in a pulpit. There are living creatures in it, I can tell you. <clears throat> What does the devil want? When you judge the armor that Paul says we are to put on, you get a very clear picture of what the devil wants. Some people think the devil wants to ruin your life. <laughs> Where do you get that from? He wants to make you as comfortable as possible. Because he wants to win you from eternity. That's why he's a deceiver. Judging by the armor, the devil wants to make you sin. Be that a moral sin or a bad sin. And the devil wants to stop the spread of the good news about Jesus. And Satan's lies are everywhere. Look at verse 12. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, <clears throat> but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul is not giving us a course in demonology concerns me that some Christians know more about the spirit world than the Bible does. That's a big concern to me. We're not meant to figure out exactly what each of these things are. We don't know exactly what they are. Actually, we know very little about the spiritual world. But the bottom line is it's all deception. These may not even be different things. Paul might be using uh, uh, the same word to describe the same thing. I don't know. If you look at the, the way the Greek structured, it's, it's, it's all, there's no prepositions, there's no and, it's just against, 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 which tends to point in that direction. Or he may be mocking the, 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 the Ephesus and the spiritual world of Ephesus and the worship of Artemis, who was called the power in the universe. Oh, Brian, you love me, mate. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, guys. Sorry, I've got a fro uh, frog in my throat. Just, thanks, Brian. He may be mocking the, the, the worship of Artemis in Ephesus. We don't know. But the key thing is that in every case it's about deception. And behind it stands the devil. Now you might be saying, Dwayne, Dwayne, isn't that a little bit reductionistic? Aren't you reducing the devil's role? What about evil acts and evil deeds and murder and greed and lust and sexual immorality? Friends, those things are not done by the devil. They are done by people who are deceived, who've bought into a lie. Stop blaming the devil. It's people. Every single sin that you commit begins with believing a lie. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Why are you greedy? Because you first believe the lie that God can't look after you. Why are you materialistic? Because you first believe the lie that money will make you happy. Why are you sexually immoral?
Because you first believe the lie that sex outside of God's plan will make you happy. And if you're married, the reason you commit adultery is because you first believe the lie that God gave you the wrong woman. You married the wrong one. Why do you murder? You murder because you firstly believe that God will not take revenge. No matter what evil it is, it begins first and foremost by believing the devil's lies. Even doubting the gospel. Why do you doubt Christianity? It's not because you're neutral. It's because you've got a whole lot of things you believe first. Lies. Which make you doubt the gospel. Friends, This passage is clear. We are up against it. Church planting is hard. Loving each other is hard. Being a Christian is hard. You will not be in this church for six months when something doesn't deeply disappoint you. Staying centered on the gospel is hard. Satan is opposed to everything that we do. So what must we do? Give up. No, we play the man. We fight. We stand. The word there used four times is stand. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13 comes up twice. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done everything else to stand. Verse 14, stand. See, the Christian life is not about pulling some big thing off. The victorious life. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is about standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not moving, no matter what comes your way. Standing on God's promises. We fight against the devil and we stand against him. Now, how do we stand? How do we stand? Well, I hope you saw it. We wear God's armour. We wear God's armour. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armour of God. And verse 13. Take up the whole armour of God. Did you hear when we read Isaiah 57? Now it's gone out of my head. Is it 57 or is it 59? 59, that's what I said. Did you listen when we read Isaiah 59? Did you see that this is God's armour? This is what God wears. That's why we're to put it on. This isn't the armour God gives us. This is His armour and we are to put on His armour. Now what I thought I would do at the risk, it's always a risk, I thought I will do it graphically for you because if you see this, uh, those of you listening online, you can't see the PowerPoint but I've got a picture of a Roman soldier up. And I just thought it would be helpful if I'm going to run very briefly through what he tells us. Look at what he says. Verse uh, 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay, here it is. There is the leather belt of truth. Paul says, wear the belt of truth. If the devil is about lies then it's obvious. The only way the church will stand if it stands on the truth that is recorded in the Bible. And in Ephesians, the truth is very specifically the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. It's the truth about us that we're dead in our sins. We can't cooperate with God. We can't turn to Him. We're finished. The truth that God loves us and has saved us and brought us to Himself. The truth about Jesus Christ, that He's Lord of heaven and earth. That is the leather belt of truth that makes us stand against the devil's lies. Not only that, we are to wear the breastplate of righteousness. And I take it, Paul means that the breastplate of righteousness is both the righteousness that God gives us when you become a Christian. I know that because that's what Paul teaches in the book of Romans, that God gives us a righteousness we don't have. But it is also the righteousness that flows from having been given a righteousness. It's both. The one leads to the other. Plus, the shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. And as you look at this whole soldier, by the way, the only part that actually carries him forward, everything else is a little bit defensive, is the feet. The readiness to preach the gospel. The readiness to go ahead. This is how the church goes forward. By preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This is why we're planting a church in Kinross. 1 and 2 Timothy tells us that the way you guard the gospel is by propagating the gospel. We don't guard the gospel by withdrawing from the big bad world. We take the world on with the gospel. Then the shield of faith, which will enable you to extinguish the darts of the devil. You know, folks, the shield of faith. If you keep believing what God has said, if you keep hanging on to his promises, nothing can touch you. It doesn't matter how bad your work is. It doesn't matter how bad your marriage is. It doesn't matter how bad your health is. If you will believe that God is good and that he has my good at heart and you cling by faith to him and what he has said, what can touch you? What can touch you? The helmet of salvation? Of course, none of these things work if your head's exposed, which I take it to mean that salvation. That is that you say that you're a Christian. See, what is it that God fights for if you read Isaiah 59? Is it 59, Samaria? It is 59. Oh. What is it that God fights for in Isaiah 59? He fights for his people's salvation. That's the helmet God wears. That's what he's fighting for. And then, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here is a puzzle for me. You probably have figured it all out, but I can't get over it. Why do Christians think that the Spirit and the Word of God are separable? Throughout the Bible, the Word of God and the Spirit of God are inseparable. The way the Spirit works is through the Word. It's like sending out, who's, uh, who's that? He's gone out of my head. Michael Clark. Isn't he the best batter in Australia? Yeah, it is Michael Clark, eh? Hey? But anyway, you know that um, uh, Australian batsman. What is the point of him going out onto the pitch without his bat? The Spirit works by the Word of God. Start at the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering, potential, 
You know something's going to happen. The Spirit of God's hovering. And what happens? God said, let there be light. The Spirit and the Word of God are inseparable. Because as we told in Ephesians, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now having done all of that, how do we fight? This is what Paul tells us. This is how we are to arm ourselves. This is the armory of God. How do we fight? Do we punch? Do we jujitsu? Whatever that is. What do we do? How do Christians fight? It's a massive surprise. It's my last point. How do we fight? We stand against the devil. We wear God's armor. We've got all this clobber on. What do we do now? What do we do? I'm going to surprise you. Please forgive me for the picture. I don't usually do this, but I came across this picture and it just said what I wanted to say. That's how we fight. For those of you listening online, it's a picture of a soldier kitted out but bending his knees in prayer. And it even says here, this was pure fluke that I came across, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And there's a great line above it. The task ahead of you is never as great as the power behind you. See, Christians fight with all that armor by going down on our knees and praying. That's what Paul says. It's such a surprise. We fight by praying. It's such a surprise. But that's what he says. Look with me. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's start at verse 17. Take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and strike. No. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which irony of ironies. I'm an ambassador in chains. That's a funny description. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's such a surprise. We fight by praying. That's why it started in verse 10. Finally, look how it started. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Folks, let me just uh, say this gently. You can't do this. We can't do this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This battle's too big for us. You might as well just go home. I'm going to get a job as a postie. You just can't do this. That's why we have to do it in His strength and in His might. And that's why we fight by praying. If it was flesh and blood, by the way, I'm sorted on Wednesday nights. I read the Bible with a whole lot of guys in Alexander Heights. One of them is a mixed martial arts boxing instructor who worked as a bouncer for the coffin cheaters. I'm safe. This guy has got arms like my legs. And it's true. He is a machine. He is, I get scared looking at him. But you know what? Wonderfully, he loves Jesus. And he's loving the Bible as we read it together. But he's useless. He's as useless as one of the little kiddies sitting up front here. That's why we wrestle with God's armor and God's 
weapons, which is prayer. Two things we pray for and then I'll be finished. Verse 18, we pray at all times in the Spirit. What does that mean? It does not mean ecstasy. It does not mean tongues. That's a ridiculous reading into the text. To pray in the Spirit means to pray according to the truth. Jesus says, the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Those things go together. To pray in the Spirit is to pray in truth. But be that as it may, we pray at all times in the Spirit. That's why I know it's not tongues, because we all pray all time in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication for two things. One, that we stay awake. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. The reason we pray is that we don't slip into doze mode. That we don't fall asleep. That we don't think we're at peacetime. That the church is on a mission. We're not here to love everybody. Make sure there's no more fires in our church. Do our little round of visitations. As long as everyone's happy. That's doze mode. We can do that in heaven. We're at war. We've got things to do. We pray, Lord, keep us awake. Don't let me doze off. We pray for our men so they don't doze in front of the TV. And then the second thing we pray for is that the gospel be preached. Verse 19. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for the proclamation boldly and clearly of the wonderful news of Jesus. We stand against the devil. We wear God's armour. We fight by praying. This is where I get close to being fired. Where were you on Thursday night? When 20 to 30 of us did battle, where were you? We had our central prayer meeting Thursday night and between 20 and 30 of us were there. What were the rest of you doing? We were fighting the battle. Were you at peace? If you've got young children or you're a mommy married to a man who's not leading the family, who's not bringing you to church, you're excused. What were the rest of you doing? As long as I am in this church and the pastor of this church, here is the one area I will put the screws in. Central prayer meeting is our most important meeting. You can't miss it. I'm going to give you the date now. The 2nd of August, Thursday night, half past seven. Don't miss it. This is where we fight. This is where we're a team. And we fight together. Why must 20 and 30 of us fight without the rest of you? Come fight with us. Repent. Come and pray with us. Any questions or comments? Oh, love it. Yes. Go, Abigail. Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I said men are meant to fight and women are meant to help them. Well, Abigail, when you get married, you'll see. But the truth is, first of all, let me say that that is true. I beg your pardon? I beg your pardon? Load the bullets. 
That's cool. Um, Abby, that is a very good question. We looked at this when we studied husbands and wives. We believe that men and women are 100% equal and 100% equally engaged in the war. But they've got different roles. And the Bible makes that absolutely clear. And the role of the man is to lead his family in a God-glorifying direction. Which is why so many women come here without their husbands. Because the men have abdicated. The way the wife supports the husband, well, I think you should chat to some of the older ladies here. Chat to Naomi. And she will tell you how she supports me in my role to lead my family in a God-glorifying direction. But I can tell you it's prayer. I can tell you it's submission to your husband. I can tell you that it's loving God and studying His Word. It's being part of a Christian community. It's all of those things. Yeah. But it's a brilliant question. And in that way, you're part of the struggle. Uh, let's go. Who was first? Pat. Yeah, go, go. 30 seconds, but you're most welcome. Go. That's right. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you, Pat. And I love what you said. This is the only weapon of offense is the word of truth, the gospel. People are not the enemy. Hmm? That is right. They are being deceived. Our enemy is never people. It's what we've just been told here. We love people, but they deceived. AJ. Yeah. Well, pr- yeah, thank you. Let me repeat that. Is that right, Abby? So, let's see. Well, 18. Awesome. <laughs> well, no, no, I don't know. Yeah. And, and that's a great question coming from your youth leader. Uh, the question is, how ca- seriously, Dwayne, don't, thank you for not letting me off so easily. How can a 12-year-old, 13-something, uh, be part of this battle if she's not married? Ladies, Do not think, and I didn't mean to convey this, that unless you're married, you're not part of the struggle. Because that would be a very terrible thing to say. So thank you, AJ. The truth of the matter, yes, uh, well, no, let me not go there. Um, But the truth of the matter is that when the gospel has come and Jesus Christ, the true captain and the true husband, has come and delivered his people, there is no such thing as a single woman. You're all married. 
Jesus is your husband. And in that sense, the man steps down and Dwayne says, actually, I'm no longer as big as bossy boots as I think I am. The Lord of my family is Jesus. So it changes the dynamic. And in that case, I would say to Abigail and ladies who aren't married, that you're part of the struggle as you join the community of God's people through prayer, through standing up for the truth, through praying for the men, and our church is led by men and always will be, through the men who lead our church. And you also want to be praying for the husbands. Because they're all slackers. They're all lazy, AJ. Um, and you also, of course, and here's the best thing, Abby, Geordie, is you want to look for a Christian man. You want to find a boy who loves Jesus and wants to lead you in a God-glorifying direction. You can avoid all the mistakes that one or two of our ladies have made. So you're in a great position. I'm going to have one more and then we'll be done. One more. No? Great. I'm going to hand over to Achilles, who's going to lead us in intercessory prayer, and he'll tell us more.